0: And if you would, please, to 1 John chapter 2, the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. Now, if someone were at to ask you to give a brief synopsis of Christianity, what would you say? When people are asked that question, people really think that they know something about Christianity. And I think that if someone asks you to describe Christianity, that the first place you would have to start with Christ is with Christ because Christ is Christianity. I think that would be natural. We would center on the things that he did, the type of life that he lived, and um, how he treated other people. And some do concentrate on things like that. If you ask them about uh, Christians and who Christ was, they may concentrate on his healing ministry. And they would talk about his kindness and his compassion. I think that you would often hear people say something like this. They would say, well, Jesus was tolerant of everybody. He was the kind of person that it didn't matter what kind of morality that you have, that that was all right with him because he was tolerant of everybody. And then they would talk about his love for everybody. And they would say that Jesus was always considerate of others. And he was a man who didn't like self-righteous people who were hypocritical. And you know, when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, we were in chapter 7, verse number 1 of Matthew, and the scripture that says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And I remember when I was preaching the sermon on that Sunday morning that we had, as we usually do, the title of the sermon out on the sign, and the title was Critical Hypocrites. And there was a lady that came into the service that day, and uh, I spoke to her before the message, and I, I asked her, well, where did you come from? I mean, why, why are you here visiting with us today? And she said, well, I was just driving by, and I saw the sign out front, and that interested me, and so I wanted to come in and hear what you had to say about critical hypocrites. And evidently, she was, uh, had something that was going on in her life where she didn't like people that were maybe criticizing her, or she didn't like to hear people criticize others. And she had an idea of Jesus that was developed from a misinterpretation of that scripture. And when I was through preaching that morning, I don't think that she was very happy because she didn't want to hear that of all the people in the world, Jesus was the most judgmental person that you would ever meet. Jesus judged people because of their sins, and Jesus demanded critical judgment of sin, and he gave us a right way to judge others. Now, of course, there is a wrong way, and you have to take that passage in Matthew in the right context, but Jesus gave us some criteria by which we could judge whether a person is of God or whether he's not of God. In fact, that's one of the things that we're talking about here in First John. How do you know which people are Christians and which are not? And how do you tell yourself whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ? So there is some judging that has to go on. But I don't think that this lady liked that because um, that misinterpretation of Scripture had led her to a picture of Jesus that wasn't accurate. And so my point is that when we're asked about Christianity, asked to give a synopsis of Christianity, rarely do you ever run into people that will start with the most important thing that Christ came into the world to do. Where you start with Christ is why he was here. And he was here because we're sinners. He came into this world and he came to to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice for sin... And so when you talk about Christ, you always have to talk about that relationship that he had with sin. And there's where you learn the reason why that he has so much love and so much compassion and why he had kindness. So Christianity starts with that premise. It's all, uh, it starts with this premise of sin. We're sinners and Christ is the sinless one who came to deliver us from sin. We are unrighteous and he is righteous. We're unholy. He is holy. We're headed for the destruction of hell. And he came for the purpose of delivering us from hell. Now, the result of that purpose is that when you become a Christian, you become a different person. You're no longer like the world. Now, the world is in sin. The world lies in sin. The world practices sin. The world is consumed with sin. And what Jesus came to do was to deliver us from that consumption. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because that's really the heart and soul of these verses that we're studying tonight. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15, John says, "'Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof.'" but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, our subject tonight is incompatible loves, and the two loves that are incompatible are very clear in the passage. You can't love the world, and you can't love the things that are in the world, and at the same time have the love of God. And the Apostle John states this, or, or Apostle James, rather, uh, states it in somewhat stronger language, which when he writes in James chapter 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses... Know ye not that the friendship of the with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, obviously, to determine who is the friend of the world and what it what it what it is that makes a person who loves the world the enemy of God, then you have to understand what is it that John means by this word "world." What is the world? And in the last message, we spent all of our time determining the answer to that question. What is the world? And so we talked about the descriptions of the world. And world is a word that's used in various ways in Scripture. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means ornament. It means adorning. Originally, what it referred to was orderly arrangement, Uh, Such as when God created this world, that he created it in an organized, orderly arrangement so that everything in the world fits together perfectly and it operates with precision. And so when we speak of the world in that way, we're talking about this earth and we're talking about the sphere on which we live. God created the world in order for us to live in. So this is our planet that we live in. But that's not the world that John is speaking of in the verse. There's no reason for us to hate the world in that sense. God has provided it as the place for us to live. He's given us all the resources that are here for our benefit. And so we're to love and to care for this world that we're in. And in that sense, there's nothing wrong with us loving the world. Unless we are to do what some people have done, and that is to worship the planet. And if we do that, then the planet becomes a part of the world that John is talking about in 1 John 2.15. Then there was also that second way that the world is used in Scripture, and that's in the sense of mankind. The world means mankind. It means human beings. And, of course, neither does John refer to that world in this passage of Scripture. In fact, that would be the opposite of what the Bible teaches, that um, Scripture teaches us that we're to love the world in that sense because God loved the world. He sent Christ into the world to die for sin. And if God loved the world in that sense, then we're to love the world also. And every one of us ought to have a deep sense of sorrow for those that die without Christ, for those that are living without Christ, and we ought to desire their salvation. So Jesus loved their souls, and so we should love their souls. And the reason why that Christianity spread so quickly in the first century is because those that were closest to Jesus knew his heart, and they had his heart. The Apostle Paul was one who was willing to give everything for Christ, willing to go the extra mile to be spent, to be used up completely in order that he might win another person to Christ. So John is not talking of the world in those two ways. The planet's not in view. Mankind is not in view. And so what does he mean by the world? What, what is the world that if we love it, it's incompatible with love for God? Well, the easiest way to describe that is the world system. The world system is everything that is not of God. And John gives us a clue to the meaning of this in the 16th verse when he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And so that means anything that did not originate with God, this is what he's speaking of. Well, if it didn't originate with God, then where did it come from? Well, it's that other system that's not native to God's creation. It's something that was not created by God. It's like a plant that's in a non-native environment that takes over everything and then there's nothing to fight it. Now, let me help you to understand that statement a little bit better as we look at the second part of that, and that is the defects of the world. The defects of the world. The world was created actually without defects. In Genesis chapter 1, you'll find that when God had finished every part of his creation, that he looked at it, and the word of God says, God saw that it was good. Everything that he created, when he finished each part of it, he said, this is good. God did not create a world with imperfections. So everything that he created that was animate and inanimate was absolutely perfect. Man was the last in that creation, and when God created him, man was also innocent and man was perfect. But then there was this non-native seed that was introduced into the perfect creation. And that non-native invasive species was sin. And once sin had been introduced by the activities of Satan and man had committed sin, then sin became a thriving uh, uh, um, uh, infestation that's impossible for us to eradicate. Back in the late 1800s, there was a plant that was introduced into the United States called kudzu it's not native to America it came from Japan and when it was first introduced into this country it was supposed that would have great benefits and today you do see it sometimes used on the side of highways to prevent soil erosion but kudzu has a very eerie uh, property to it and that is that you can hardly kill the stuff And it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and if it's left unchecked, it overgrows everything. Kudzu is known as the mile-a-minute vine because it grows so quickly. In the United States, uh, every year, there are 150,000 acres that's taken over by kudzu. And maybe you don't realize how much that is, but that's 235 square miles. It means if you were to square off an area from here to about Fresno and go south 235 miles, east 235 miles, west 235 miles, and north 235 miles, and have this big box, well, there you would find, well, actually, that's more than 235 square miles, isn't it? But, if you, but you're, what I'm talking about it's as far as from here to Fresno. Maybe that would be a little bit better way to put it. But if you, if you did that, you'd have an idea of how much that plant grows every year. You can't hardly get rid of this stuff. Well, sin is like that non-native plant. It's spread to the entire creation. It's in every person. It thrives so that every single part of man has been taken over by sin. His will, his mind, his affection, his activities, his thoughts, everything about man has been infected with sin. And the creation is now cursed with that, and it suffers from the effects of sin. And that did not come from God. And so when John says, for all that is in the world, he means that system, all that's been infected by sin that's in the world. It's the world of sin, and that's to be hated by God's people. You can't accept any part of that. You can't be partners with any part of it. Because it didn't originate with God, you can't have anything to do with it. Because if you do, then you can't have any part with him. Now, then in the 16th verse, John describes it. All that is in the world is covered by the three areas that we find in John uh, 2, verse number 16. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's it. That, That covers it all. That covers humanity. It covers man and his entire being. And John calls it all that is in the world. Now, interestingly, there are many theologians who say that those three areas... Cover the temptation of Christ. When Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, he was tempted in all three of those areas. And those three areas covered the whole spectrum. And by resisting all of those temptations, he rejected, Christ rejected the entire world system. And so his supreme love for the Father was judged by how he responded to those temptations. And when he rejected all three types of those temptations, that demonstrated that the love of the Father was in him. And if Jesus had failed in any of those temptations, then we would be talking about him right here. He could not have part with the Father because he yielded to, that, to one of those areas that man is infected with because of sin. So his supreme love for the Father was borne out by the resisting of those temptations. And when we do the very same things, when we have that love of the Father in us as we should, then it will cause us to resist and to hate anything that is in the world system. Now if you think about that for a moment, when is it that you fail in your Christianity? You fail in your Christianity when your focus is not God. Your service fails when your focus is not God. Now, this means when something that is more attractive to you, something more pleasurable, invades the space that should be occupied by God, then you have lost your focus on God. Now, we do have to live in the world, and we do know that we have to interact with it. We do have to survive here physically. But the problem comes when the physical begins to take over our focus. Scripture says that there's not one of us who ever needs to worry about how long that we're going to live or how we're going to live. God is in control of that. Jesus said the Heavenly Father is aware of all of our needs. Matthew 6, Jesus said, "...therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your Heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things." But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now that would be the same as saying, reject the wrong focus of the world, and put your mind on the right objective, which is God. So you don't need the world system to live in God's kingdom. Well, we're going to look at these three areas that are mentioned in verse number 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So we'll look at first the internal sin. And the internal sin is described by the lust of the flesh. And that is the natural desires that arise out of our fallen nature. There's some translations that use the word desire. Some say here the cravings of the sinful man. And it is that internal craving... That produces sin. Now, there are many people who think that sin is external, that Satan is the one who puts the desire for sin in us, but Satan, or rather sin, is not born out of Satan's temptations. All that Satan ever does is put the temptation before us to feed the desire that's already inherent uh, because of the sinful nature. James says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, as John uses the term here, lust of the flesh, he's referring primarily to things such as our sexual desires and covetousness. Now, have you ever thought how often that the Bible deals with that particular sin? The Bible speaks about this often. Uh, there's so much said about it because those kinds of things occupy such a large part of our thought processes. And all you really need to do is take about five minutes to look around you to find that it's true. You drive down the highway and you see it on billboards. Turn on the radio and 99% of the songs that you listen to on the radio will have something to do with it. Turn on the television, watch TV programs, and there will be multiple references to it. Head to the market and you'll find it there. You know, sometimes it really, I don't know, makes me wonder how people do this, but I, I'm, I go to Safeway and I'm standing there in the frozen food section shivering and I don't understand how these women come in there with hardly any clothes on and don't freeze to death. You see it everywhere that you go and you're hard-pressed to escape this. Even when you come into church a lot of times, it's hard for you to escape this. Now, the, the sensuous desires of man come from that fallen nature. When we study... The Maniac of Gadara on, on Sunday. We don't, actually won't talk about this on this particular Sunday, but in the third part of the message I'm preaching on that, dealing with demons, there's a peculiar thing about that man. Uh, he was wild with demons. He had all these uh, thousands of demons that were in him, and what he did was to run around the tombs naked. Taking your clothes off is a sign of depravity. When Jesus cast the demons out of the man, you know what he did? First thing he did was put his clothes on. And I thought that that's an interesting thing. Nakedness is not compatible with the love of the Father. So sensuous desires, the, these kinds of lusts, make up a huge part of thought, our thought processes. And all of that is a part of the world system that's against the Father. If you take a look at the idolatrous religions in the world uh, and many of the cults, that their practices have a lot to do with, with the sensual thoughts of man. I think it's kind of interesting that if you think about Joseph Smith and those golden plates that he supposedly found. Joseph Smith was the one who was the founder of the Mormons. And I I hope most of you know the story of how he supposedly found these golden plates and there he was able to translate those and that's where they got the Book of Mormon. And it's kind of interesting that Joseph Smith was led into polygamy. Now, a thing about Joseph Smith is that uh, he had... 33 wives. Seven of them were teenagers. And so if he was alive today, we'd be calling him a child molester. But people today in the Mormon church revere him as the founder of their church. I found an interesting photo. If you'd show it to this Dalton here. This is, this is um, the family of Joseph Smith's nephew. That's all his wives and his children in that photo. The second leader of Mormonism was Brigham Young... And I'm sure that all of you men would be proud to have 55 wives and 56 children. So what does the Scripture say about those kinds of perversions? Well, in Galatians it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. So the lusts of the flesh are contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. And That's not hard to figure out why John would say that that kind of desire, that that kind of love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. You can't mix those two things together. Now internally, we have these desires and they turn out to be perversions of the good things that God has given. For example, when you talk about sexual desires, uh, those things are not evil within the framework of, of the way God has designed it. God says that marriage is an honorable thing for us. The Apostle Paul said it's a good thing for people to get married uh, for many reasons, but one of them is to fulfill the natural desires of men and women, to satisfy that natural desire. There's nothing wrong with that. But sexual union that's holy and blessed by God, according to the Scripture, becomes a perversion in things like polygamous marriages. It's perversion in homosexual acts and adulterous relationships. And that's what the heart of man tends to do. It tends to take those things that God has given that are good and to pervert them and use them against God. Now, the second phrase here is the lust of the eyes. And this is the external source. The inherent sin nature causes us to look for things that will satisfy our natural cravings. And this world is more than ready to accommodate all of those natural cravings. So John says the lust of the eyes, and he says that's not a part of the world system. God hates that, and that's not compatible with love for him. And there are plenty of examples that we can find in the Scripture where eyes have gotten people in trouble. The eyes are called the window of the soul. And so what you let in by your eyes goes straight down to your heart, and it begins to uh, stir up those sensual desires that you have, and, and it keeps stirring it up until it gets satisfaction. And that's why David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And David knew well the trouble that the eyes can cause because it was David who lusted after Bathsheba. And after he lusted after uh, after her, he acted upon that lust that caused him to commit adultery. Then a murder grew out of that. And then he lost the life of his child because of that sin. Achan is another one that was ensnared by the lust of the eyes. He said to Joshua... He said, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And there were 36 men that died because Achan had the lust of the eyes. Finally, he and his family were stoned because he yielded to that temptation. And in this case, there was covetousness in his heart that caused him to steal from God. Everything that was in Jericho was to be dedicated to God. God said, you take all the spoils and you give them to me. Now, God intended at a later time that Israel would share in the spoils of their victories, but not this time. He said, all of this belongs to me. And so when Achan decided that he wanted what belonged to God, that disobedience showed that he cared very little about God's commands. And that is the same type of covetousness that causes people to steal tithes and offerings from God today. Money that should be given to God's work, people steal that because the command to love, or command rather to give the tithe, is of little consequence to people who don't love God. Now you can plug that into John's test of of discipleship, the test of whether you are truly a Christian. There's that moral test which was the keeping of commandments and you can't love God because if you don't keep the commandments because to disobey him is to reject the lordship of Christ. And then there's also the problem in the eyes, and you couldn't, with the eyes and you couldn't forget this one which is that trouble that happened in the Garden of Eden. All of this got started because of the lust of the eyes because Eve saw the fruit and she desired it she wanted to have it. She saw it was good for food. She turned to Adam and knew that his desire would be the same. They both partook of it. And that caused this whole mess that we have with sin today. Now, It's no wonder that John says the lust of the eyes. This is a part of the world's system. And if you have the lust of the eyes, you can't have the love of the Father. Now what happens always when you see things like this happening, when sins like this happen, it always leads to destruction. God's justice is always poured out on sin, and it's always going to be that way. God's perfect righteousness says that sin has to be punished. And so when people have the lust of the eyes, punishment is going to follow. The inevitable justice of God is going to follow, and it follows because those things are not compatible with love for God. Now, thirdly, and this is the one that in some ways probably intrigues me the most, the third one is the irrational supposition. The irrational supposition, the irrational supposition is the pride of life. And the word translated there as pride is actually boasting. And uh, William Barclay put this in a way that really drove this home to me. He, he speaks of the boaster as being the one who seeks to impress everyone he meets with his non-existent importance. That one just kind of, I think, will stick with me. It's the person who seeks to impress everyone he meets with his non-existent importance. Uh, believe me, for some time of my life, I've been acquainted with people that can't help but use the word I. They can't stop using the word I. And what they want to do is impress other people with their non-existent importance. And can you see how that can't be compatible with love for the Father? Because what is it that God desires the most out of us? He desires that we should glorify him. Now, if you were to take away the glory of God out of our ministry, quite frankly, I don't think there'd be much left. But if you were to take the glory of God out of this, then I could easily have been something else. I mean, I could agree with people who who want to remove God's election out of the picture and, and to remove God's effectual grace out of the picture. If God doesn't desire all the glory, and we're not to give all glory to him for every single thing, then I could easily become something else. But I know that that's not compatible with the love of the Father. It can't be, because God calls that the pride of life. It's the exaggeration of man's importance in this whole scheme of salvation. Now, you can apply to that the other test, the test of love and the test of doctrine. You can inject it right there, because trying to impress people with your non-existent importance is an expression of self-love. And there's no person that can love himself and love God at the same time. That's, that's an impossibility. Then the doctrinal test, of course, would apply here too. But I was thinking about this whole thing. And I was thinking about, you know, if somebody was going to have an exaggerated an exaggerated self-importance or had cause to, I thought about Abraham. Wouldn't he have cause to have a, this self-importance or be impressed with self-importance? But think about the biblical principle that was displayed by Abraham. Hebrews chapter 7 says, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Now, I don't know if you know what that refers to or not, but this is when Abraham had just returned from the uh, rescuing Lot. And he, he met Melchizedek. And he bowed down before Melchizedek, and he paid his tithes to Melchizedek. Now Abraham could have said, you know, I'm rich. I'm a, I'm a wealthy guy. I have enough servants that I can muster my own, my own army. And in fact, I did. I raised my own army out of just my servants. And I went out there after those kings, and I took back Lot, and I took back all the stuff that they stole. And Abraham could have lauded his accomplishments, but he didn't. Instead, he stopped, and he bowed before the high priest of God and gave him his tithes. And so in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek said, Blessed be Abraham, or the Most High God, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Now there was Abraham. He could have said, Look what I did. And Melchizedek would have said, Look what you didn't, because it was God who delivered the enemies into your hand. Now, folks, that's why I teach what I teach. It's because God deserves all the glory. And so what we'll do around here is we'll talk a whole lot more about him and a lot less about us. You can't praise you and praise God at the same time. Now let me see if I can wrap it up rather quickly here. I think we have a picture of what the world is and that's not incompatible or that is incompatible with the Father. But John adds another note to this in verse number 17, why you do not want to be attached to the world. And this is thirdly, the difference in the world. In the 17th verse, he says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of of God abideth forever. Now, what you never want to do is to put your anchor down on this sinking ship. William MacDonald wrote, When a bank is breaking, smart people do not deposit in it. When the foundation is tottering, intelligent builders do not proceed. Concentrating on this world... Is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. In other words, what he's saying is this world is going down. And how much clearer could it be than in our study of Revelation on Sunday nights? And we've been talking about the fall of Babylon. You know what Babylon is? very same thing John's talking about. It's the world system. The world system is going down. Uh, The apostle John says in, in Revelation that it's Babylon. And here in 1 John, he calls it all that is in the world. And all of that's going to be destroyed in an instant. There we have the future foretold. The world, as it is, is going nowhere but down. In its present state, it can't go anywhere but down. And if you're attached to the world, if you've anchored everything that you have in this life and everything that's here, you're going to lose it all. This is what Paul says in First Timothy. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And then Jesus put it another way. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And Solomon said it yet in another way. And if there was anybody who went through a a time of life when he had exaggerated importance of himself, it was Solomon. And Solomon said, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, And on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And what God's people cannot do is to throw in with the world because of two propositions, two false propositions. The love of the world is antithetical to the love of of the Father in two ways. The first one is it denies the transformation to new life. If you love the world, then you deny that you have been changed to be like Christ. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father and he said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now there Jesus shows us that the way to glorify God is to do all the work that God has given us to do. Now think about what Jesus is saying there. He hadn't yet died. This was before the crucifixion, and yet he speaks of the crucifixion as if it was already done. And so he knows what he's going to do throughout his life up to the very end. He is going to do the work that God has given him to do. And so we ought to be able to look back at our lives and see what we've done in the past and what we're doing now and say, well, I've done the work that God has called me to do, and I'm going to stay faithful to it. I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to do it until the very end, and at the end, I'll be able to look back and say, I've done everything that God has told me to do. Now, if you miss that, then you can't miss this. Jesus glorified the Father in all things. Every work that he was commissioned to do by the Father, he did for the glory of God. He kept the law perfectly. He kept every command so that not one part of the law would be left unfulfilled. His entire life was exemplary. Now, If we think about then what Christ has saved us from and what what he's called us to do for a Christian to throw in league with the world is to deny that a transformation has actually taken place in your life. That transformation is what makes us like him. Sin keeps us from being like him. But here's what we're saved for. We're saved that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what salvation is about. And so if Christ dwells in you, how could you live like the world? He can't, or he didn't, so you can't. He loved the Father, and he was obedient to the Father. And if you're going to be like him, and if you're going to love the Father as Jesus loved him, then you also have to be obedient. And then, what about the irrational supposition? Well, Jesus was exemplary in that way as well, because Jesus never boasted Jesus was never caught up with pride. There were no ostentatious displays in his life. Jesus could have walked around with a crown on top of his his head if he'd wanted to. He was certainly deserving of it, but he didn't do that. And contrary to the artwork that you see today where Jesus has a glow about him as he's doing his work and he has a halo over his head every time he's doing something, Jesus never walked around like that. Jesus only did one thing. Everything that he did pointed upward to the Father to glorify him. And then secondly, the love of the world is different from that of the Father because it denies the transitory nature of life. John says, this world passeth away. And that's actually a transitory verb. It means this world is passing away. In other words, this world right now is spiraling down. The world is going down to destruction. And it's the destruction that was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God said to the, to the serpent that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And from that point forward, the world has been going down until the time that God's going to destroy it and make it anew. So the world system is going to fail. But what God created this world for, what he created heaven for, is that it would be inhabited by a race of sinless men. And so what God says that he's going to do is to restore this physical earth so that that happens. And so if you know Christ as Savior, you're not going to pass away. And the world that you're going to live in will not pass away. We're going to live forever. So what is passing away? Well, the world that John speaks of. The one that didn't originate with God. The one that's the devil's system. The one that's ruled with the attitude that it's prejudiced by evil. That world's headed down the tubes. But the opposite of that is found in the last part of the verse. But he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. And so what world is going to survive? It's the world that's loved by God. It's the one where God reigns supreme in the hearts of his people. The one that loves him and the one that hates the old world of sin. The world, of course, doesn't want you to think that way. You know what their idea is? The same as those wicked Gnostics that John is continually trying to refute in this little letter. They're the ones that are wrapped up in Greek and and uh, Roman philosophy and tried to mix that in with their Christianity. And these were the ones that said, well, let's live it up. Let's live it up. Things continue as they were from the beginning and tomorrow is going to be just like today. And what they did was to deny the transitory nature of of life. God's word says the world is going away, but God's people have eternal life and they're going to live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time spent in your word tonight. Such important truths that we find here. And we see, Lord, how clear it is that we cannot love the world and love you. And that means that every Christian here has to forsake that If we're going to have proof of our Christianity, if we're going to know that we are truly born-again believers, then we can't have the love of the world in us. We have to forsake that. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help your people to do that today. Bless as we sing tonight. Thank you for these people who have come to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.